Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 74th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Friday the 9th of December 2016 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we have part two of our discussion with Charles Farrell where we delve into the murky world of high-stakes sports gambling, his appearance in the new documentary film Dirty Games and his life-changing meeting with a two-headed calf. But before all that, I have a few people to thank. First off, the once-off donations of Dave W and Sam W and of course all the monthly subscribers. I must also thank the new YouTube subscribers Ryan Freiberger, Cynthia Quilici, Judy Hobbs, Eric Camacho and Kill Zero Zap. Please like, subscribe, share, tweet or leave a review for the show over on iTunes. It really helps spread the word. Okay, to the interview. Getting back to your experiences then, can you tell us about the biggest bet that you ever put down and what was your what was your thinking behind this bet? Well, the biggest bet I ever put down is, a, is another thing I can't talk that much about, but it had to do with a, a, a fight of no particular... It was a middleweight championship fight, but, but not a significant fight between two guys who I saw as being pretty much equal, Reggie, Reggie Johnson and Steve Collins, who, who I also know pretty well from, you know, he trained here in Boston. His awesome. early career was, you know, at the Petronelli Gym, which is where I was. So, you know, I saw a lot of Steve. That's the um, gym where, that's the gym that Marvin Hagler was in as well. Right. Right, that's when I knew it. I used to spend all of my afternoons there. Actually, um, there's, an, there's another guy, there's another Irish guy that fought for a title against Mike McCallum that used to fight out of there. Sean Is Mannion. It, Sean Mannion, yeah. My, fa- my father used to play fo- football with him. <laughs> he lives in Dorchester. He was, uh, he was my lawyer's client. Very, <laughs> very tough character, Sean. Very tough guy. I heard some story about him that he was in a fight. I think maybe you were involved with it or something, whereby I think was it Wilfredo Benitez, I think, might have been starting to manage some fighters, and they brought him in on short notice, and he couldn't make the weight. Have you heard this story? No, no, that's not me, but, I, but tell me, because I, I, I like Sean. Yeah, so he, they, they couldn't make the weight. Uh, at, you know, the weigh-in was the same day weigh-in back then, and he was like, I think, eight pounds over. <laughs> so, so they brought him back to his hotel room and they put him into the into the bathroom and they put mm-hmm. uh, you know a, 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 a tracksuit on and right. you know a bathrobe on top of it and they gave him a skipping rope and they turn on all the hot, hot taps and they steamed up the room and they sellotaped the room closed and they made him skip for like an hour in there and so he came back out and they went to go and they went to weigh him in again and when they weighed him in, he was still like three pounds over. So then he just, they decided to make him run up and down oh my God. the boardwalk. I think it was in Atlantic City or something. And he was running for another hour. And they weighed him again. And he was one pound over. And they, 
you know, his managers were saying to their managers, you know, can you just let him off? Because he was right. fighting, a, he was fighting a prospect, you know, and he was just being brought in at short notice, and he was awake division too big or something. Or no, he was just short notice, so he had he had too much weight on. So they wouldn't allow him to fight unless he lost the last pound because they wanted their guy to win, you see. They brought him back to the hotel and they got, you know, pure alcohol and they rubbed it on his body. <laughs> this has got to be so illegal and dangerous. <laughs> they rubbed him with pure alcohol all over his body. And then they brought him back and they weighed in and he just barely made the way in. And Sean Mannion turned around, I think, to the... to the guy's manager i think it might have been wilfredo benitez i might have that wrong and he he went i'm gonna i'm gonna fuck him up for what you made me do <laughs> and <laughs> so they went into this fight anyway and sean Mannion, i think beat him from pillar to post for like 12 rounds and got the decision and, and you got know, the decision and got well, the, that, that, that may be the, the strangest part of the story I know because can you imagine what he put his body through before he had to do it? So, he, and I think that was maybe his big breakthrough one. And then he ended up fighting for a world title, but uh, he he lost that fairly wide, I think. When he fought, when he fought Mike McCallum, yeah, sure. But I mean, Mike McCallum was, you know, a great, great fighter. As a matter of fact, Stevie Collins lost to Mike McCallum too. Absolutely, yeah. I was, uh, I, was I was actually ringside for that one. So tell us about this bet anyway. Sorry for that long interruption. Oh, that's great. You know, the funny thing is I saw a guy, a fighter, club fighter in Pensacola, Florida once. Uh, I had a fighter on the, as the co-feature to a Roy Jones fight. And Roy Jones had a friend named Billy Lewis who was a light heavyweight. And there was a, this Cajun fighter named Tim St. Clair who was a bona fide lunatic. Just a crazy, crazy guy fearless character. I'll get back to the gambling story in a sec. And day before the weigh-in, Tim St. Clair weighed in for a light heavyweight fight at 199 pounds. And they were going to cancel the fight, of course, because he had to get down to 175. So that's 24, said, that's 24 pounds overweight. Oh, right. And he said, no, no, I can do it. And for the next day and a half, he did exactly what you said. He, he wrapped himself up in saran wrap and, and, and uh, like heavy jackets. And he went into the sauna in his hotel room, closed himself up, jumped rope, did all that stuff and made weight. And I watched him fight. I forget if it was, I think it was an eight round fight. And he was a funny, funny kid. And I'm sitting, I'm, I'm ringside. My guy had, had already had his fight. And lost, uh, and because I wanted to watch Roy fight, and um, so you know, poor, poor Tim St. Clair's getting getting knocked all around the ring. But he's fighting a guy who really can't fight very much, so he's he, you know he's not being put out of his misery. And I remember he gets dropped late late in the fight, and I'm right there. He's, you know, his face is like right right there. And he looks over at me, and he's got this, you know, he's a guy from down south, just a redneck guy, and he says to me, Charles, if I kiss him, you think he'll, he'll go away? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, so I've, I, I wanted to bet on this, this fight 
where I got ridiculously good odds. I, I don't know why, because Reggie Johnson and Steve Collins were real equals. You know, they were both guys who were good boxers. Neither one could punch very hard and neither one got knocked out. You know, so I know I'm dealing with a fight that's going to go to a decision. You know, unless something untoward happens, like they, they bang heads or something like that. So I'm betting on who's going to win the decision. And it's, it's a pick em fight. But politically, it makes sense for Stevie Collins to win the fight because nobody cares about Reggie Johnson. And Stevie Collins has lots of business in Europe. You know, he's got guys who are his weight, who could, you know, Chris Eubanks, Nigel Ben, I mean, guys who are real ticket sellers. So there's an opportunity for everybody to make a lot of money with Steve Collins. So I think, okay, well, this is going to be a close fight. And, you know, it's, no matter what, it's, it's going to be a close decision. And they'll give it to Stevie Collins, of course, because business being what it is, they'll, they'll make the prudent decision. So I somehow got something like three to one odds and I couldn't figure it out. So I got together all the money I had in the world, which is about $425,000. It would have paid off a million two-ish. And this is all in cash. And I had to fly down to Santo Domingo. It's in the Dominican Republic. And I had to arrange through a friend of mine, because you can't, you can't go into the Dominican Republic if you have more than $10,000 in cash without declaring it at customs, which clearly I was not going to do. So I had somebody pick me up in a private plane, and I had a friend in the Dominican Republic who was a local politician who I met through a friend in boxing, and we actually landed in a little airfield under the radar in the middle of nowhere in this private plane. And um, their, their side brought their money. It's all cash. I had a guy who was a bodyguard. He had my money, and we met in, the, you know, in Santo Domingo, and we watched this fight on TV. And, uh, and I lost. I lost on a majority decision. So they bring the 1.2 million and, and you bring your 400,000. You both sit down and watch the, watch the fight. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Yes. Is, is Santo Domingo a place people go to put on extreme bets? No, not necessarily. No, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, I knew Santo Domingo very well. I, I, I almost, I wound up buying a place in Puerto Rico. I almost bought a place in the Dominican Republic. I managed fighters from from there. I spent a lot of time there. But um, no, I, I think it was just sort of coincidental that we all knew people there. We all knew how to get in and get out. You know, so that's that's where we wound up and that's where it took place. And they, I, you know, I, I still don't know who I bet against because uh, the guys who I saw with these two, the guys who brought their money were these two, they were either Samoan or Fijian guys, just, just big. I mean, I'm, the guy I brought was just under seven feet tall and about 300 pounds. He had been a fighter. And these guys were wider than, than my guy. They weren't, <laughs> they weren't as, as tall, but, you know, I would have put my money on them. 
Well, you know, um, you know David David Tua, right? David Tua, like he was a heavyweight in the nineties, but his neck was nearly thicker than his head. Well, you know, he he was he's the nephew of these guys. I remember seeing him at the weigh-in uh, at a fight down in in Tampa once, and he was brought in by his uncles, who were all professional wrestlers. Uh, and these guys were just, just monsters. You know, uh, they were they were called the Wild Samoans, and I sort of knew them anyway through some other people I knew. And you know, they're they maybe you know, these guys are maybe six feet tall or six one or something like that, but they're all three hundred and fifty pounds, and they're like blocks of granite. Yeah, you there's know? no there's no steroids involved. No steroids involved. No, no, and they're genuine tough guys too. You know, they're, I mean, they're guys you do not want to play around with. But anyway, so that was my big, that was my big gambling error. And it wasn't until years later that I thought, oh, you know what? I might have gotten played on this. This might have been, this might have been a scam. And it, it, it didn't occur to me at the time. When people put on these huge sums, bookmakers won't take that size of money normally. Is it normally when you're doing those big bets, it's a one-to-one operation? It depends. You know, it depends on, for, for a little fight like the one that I'm talking about, there would be no action like that. The kind of the kind of bets we're talking about would completely, you know, disrupt whatever odds making. I mean, no, people would be mistrustful of a bet like that. But no, I mean, if there's a fight, you know, if, if there's, you know, the Mike Tyson-Lennox-Lewis fight, there are bets like that placed all the time and, and bigger ones. And uh, certainly bookmakers take those bets. What was the motivation behind making such a high risk bet? Oh, wait a minute. On, on whose part? On your part. Like why, why put all your money in the world together on this one bet? Well, first of all, I was a gambler. That's what I did. You, yeah. like, you know, the, like there's a Kelly criterion that people use for trying to determine how much of their bankroll to bet at any one time. That's a, a, a kind of a mathematical, theoretical one, but like that seems to be like that. You know, it's it's kind of poor bankroll management. I can't argue with that. It is, you know, but you no, know, I mean, right, it, it, inarguably bad money management. But what I saw was one of those situations that didn't. I knew the fight was going to be real, and there are times when if you gamble you have to assess risk reward. You know, if, if you're, if you're a blackjack player, you know, and you're, you're Delta 19 or 20, you know, you may go big on that. And that's probably the right move, but you can lose. You know, I think the thing I didn't figure out and maybe a, a in, in hindsight, a red flag should have come up for me is the three to one odds, which is why I took the bet to begin with. But it's also the thing that should have maybe tipped me off that there was business being done. Business you being know, done ex- external to your bet. In, yes, as well as part of the same as you know as part of the same scam. That in other words, it could theoretically. Let's say that you're. A, uh, a gambler and you want to rope in a bunch of people on a false bet. Let's say you get 10 people 
worldwide who would understand the bet the way I understood it as a legitimate bet. Okay, so that's, you know, 425,000 or 400,000 or 500,000 or whatever other people bet multiplied by 10. That's $5 million. That's a lot of money. All you have to do to get that money is pay two judges in a close fight to go your way. Well, that's, that's a very small investment to make. Are we saying it's the one crowd of people who are willing to take your money would likely be taking the big bets from all the other people on the great exactly, line? Right, exactly. They're people who could handle making those bets. It's credible that they would do it. And, uh, of course, they understand they're not going to lose their money. All they have to really do is have enough cash on hand to present it when the bet is made. I mean, obviously, if, you know, if, if they say, well, let me see your money, I have the right to say, well, let me see your money. You know, if they'd opened up, if they'd opened up suitcases and they'd been, you know, rolled up newspaper, well, we wouldn't have had a bet. But that's, again, you know, you can get people to, to lend you money for an hour if they trust you, if you do business with them. So, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, look, I could be wrong about this. I'm taking a guess. But my feeling ultimately about this was that I got completely snookered. And so did probably another 10 to 12 people worldwide. You know, and if so, it's not only the biggest, second biggest mistake I ever made. It's our third biggest mistake I ever made. <laughs> I, I'm, in effect, I made it twice. I don't know how much you're able to talk about this, but you, you're not in boxing anymore. Can you say what you can say about it? Uh, I can try. Um, there was a problem with a fight. And... Uh, And I handled it, I handled it correctly. So there were, in terms of what I had been hired to do, the right result took place. But I was dealing with some people who were very, very bad people and I made it an error, again, that I corrected, but somebody was involved who who I guessed wrong about. And so there were consequences uh, surrounding this particular fight. And um, I wound up in a lot of trouble. You were had a death threat. That's right. From people who I took very seriously. So you kind of went to Puerto Rico at this time. Yeah, you know, I had I had ten dogs on the ten. farm. Ten. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I own a big farm down there, so you know, a lot of acreage. And the dogs were divided between wild dogs. In, in Puerto Rico, there are these dogs called satos. There are a lot of them, and they they are they're just wild dogs. And house dogs who I'd brought from the States. And one night there was some kind of virus that, that didn't, didn't, uh, the Satos didn't, were not infected. 
but they killed two of whatever it was killed two of my uh, my U.S. dogs, and one of them was dying. Although you know I, we didn't know how serious it was, we knew it was a problem, and so we rushed. I'm way up in the mountains in rural Puerto Rico. I bought a coffee plantation there. And so, you know, we're going through these winding mountain roads down to what the closest city is. And the closest city is a not a particularly big city called Mayajues. And we knew a vet, veterinarian there, and so he was waiting for us. And we didn't make it. You know, our dog died uh, on the way. And... It was just a horrifying experience, just just a terrible thing. You know, I'm a big animal rights person, and you know, for me, uh, you know, my dogs are family. I know as close to me as you know, people in my family. I, I don't really differentiate. Anyway, so I was very very unhappy about all of this, and the veterinarian said, "Well, look, I want to show you something," and he took me out to the parking area of, of his clinic. And he opened up this, there was a farm truck, and he opened up a farm truck. And inside the farm truck, there was a calf, you know, a sort of adolescent age calf, and it had two heads. And it was being cared for by this vet and by the people, the farmers who, where, you know, where it was born, they were taking good care of it. They were making sure that it somehow lived. But I, I, I you know, I'm not sure, even sure how to frame this kind of language. But this animal was so beautiful, and both heads sort of looked at me in this incredibly open way. And there was a... And, and the, the picture I got was that they wanted to live. You know, that, that that's what they were doing. They were, all of their impulse was in wanting to live. And it was this incredibly profound experience. And I, you know, I thought, well, okay, fair enough, you know. Uh, I think I want to live too. And I also think uh, maybe, maybe there's a type of ethics that I'm not seeing. You know, there's a type of behavior, a better behavior that might be available to me. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not connecting the dots here well, and I'm not sure that I can do it. Better how? Like what? What type of behavior do you are you talking about? It has to do, without trying to be too precious about it, with looking after each other a little bit. You know that that if you're alive, you have a right to live. Whatever your conditions, you have a right to live if that's what you want to do. I thought, well, all right. Let me contribute to this mindset rather than be party. Now, I mean, I, I, I got out of boxing for a lot of reasons. And some are not nearly as spiritual as this. 
you know, uh, and uh, not nearly as zen as this. But that factored into how I saw myself in boxing and boxing in general, but also life in general. Yeah, but meanwhile, there are some bad guys who were looking for me in Puerto Rico. So that's, that's you know, to be candid, that, that factored into my decision in a big way too. But I mean, it was this, this um, genuinely surrealistic experience. It certainly sounds surreal. It sounds like something from a, a magical realist book. Yes. Yeah, it does. It does. What do you what do you do what do you spend your days doing now that you're out of the business? Well, I, I practice piano every morning. I meditate. If I were behaving myself, I would exercise. You know, I do musical projects that that interest me, and uh, I write. You know, I get paid to write. Uh, surprisingly enough, something I certainly had never expected to do. But that's it. I live a relatively monastic life in some ways. I've listened to some of your jazz on YouTube. There's a few bits of you playing live. How would you describe your style now? You know, I've got a language that I speak. I, I you know, I sort of came up with it by myself, and uh, I've been pretty consistent with it for a long time. I, you know, I, you know, I was influenced by people like Coltrane, but and um, you know, I, I played quite a bit with Ornette Coleman toward the end of his life, which was enjoyable, although it didn't, didn't change the way I play in any way. But, you know, I've, I've just figured out a way to play that suits me, you know. But, I mean, of course, I've played a lot of different other ways professionally, but that's, uh, I found my voice, so that's, that's what it is. It's not really influenced by anyone. The team tune to the show is an obscure Sun Ra track. I thought that you might like it. I used to I used to hear Sun Ra all the time. Did you? I, I assume he was before your time. Yeah, yeah. I'm only about. I'm not forty yet. Yeah, he's before my time. But yeah, I'm a big fan. My we called our 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 son. I have only one son, Sunny. After Sun Ra. Sunny, Sunny Plout. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> great. No, I. You know, one of his players, John Gilmore, is a, was a great, great favorite of mine. Do you know John? He's a tenor. He's a Tenor sax, is it? Tenor, tenor saxophone player, yeah. Yeah, just it's amazing when you listen to somebody like Sun Ra and you listen to some of his tracks, you know, they're from late 50s, say early mm -hmm. 60s stuff, and you listen to them now, and they sound more fresh and more current to me than anything I listen to that I hear just randomly on a, on a station. I agree. Well, you know, I mean, he, he's got an interesting background. You know, he was, he was a... Um, an arranger and an orchestrator for, you know, people like Fletcher Henderson in the 1930s. So, um, you know, he comes out of a real tradition and then he transfigures it in some interesting way. You know, but I mean, all, to me, all innovative music sounds brand new. It doesn't matter when it was made. You know, uh, I listen to Bach and it sounds brand new to me. It refutes time completely. So Charles, you're currently starring in a film. Yes, thank you. I appreciate your mentioning it. There's a guy, a German film director named Benjamin Best, B-E-S-T, who released a film, this, I guess, this year called Dirty Games, and it's about various types of sports fixing throughout the world. It deals with FIFA and uh, the NBA, and 
these guys flew from Germany to Boston to talk to me about fight fixing. And um, they gave me a fair hearing, which is pretty interesting. They gave me time to talk. And when I saw the film back, they didn't leave a whole lot on the editing floor. So, you know, I don't know about other sports and so can't comment intelligently on what they talk about in regard to FIFA and, and in regard to, you know, American basketball. But if what they did with me is in, indicative of their general approach, and my feeling is it probably is, the film is worth watching because it, it presents an element of these sports that tends to be not seen very clearly or, you know, presented in a way that's particularly melodramatic. And they, for the most part, avoid that. So I, I would recommend, you know, your listeners looking up the film and getting a look at it. I think they might find it interesting. And you're also in a collection of stories, a new book being published as well. That's right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really flattered to have been involved in this. this it's a boxing anthology called The Bittersweet Science. And it will be, it, you can, you can pre-order it now. It's edited by two wonderful boxing writers, Mike Ezra and Carlo Rotella. And it's, been, it's being published by the University of Chicago Press. And there are 15 essays by boxing writers. And it really is the fastest company I know uh, of boxing writers, because boxing writers are notoriously horrible. But these guys, and, and, and one woman, Sarah Deming, who was an amateur fighter, this is intelligent adult boxing writing. You know, it's, um, I'm very, very flattered to have been included in this. I recommend the book highly, and, and not, not, not because I'm one of the writers. There is something unique about boxing that lends it to both writing and film as a sport. <clears throat> well, yes and no. You know, I mean, it should, and at its best it does, but it also lends itself to melodrama and sentimentality. So it's produced more bad writing and more bad film than anything close to approaching the good stuff that's come out of it. So you have to be a little careful. That's true. But I, I suppose... Like the way I look at it, nearly every single sports film I've ever seen, like it's invariably absolutely rubbish. But with boxing, there are four or five very good films that, that no other sport can live up to that. There's something about boxing. I don't know what it is. Well, I mean, it's an individual sport. So that, I mean, that, that certainly makes it a little bit easier because you can focus in a different way. Yeah, but there's not very great tennis epics. Huh, that's interesting. Well, maybe because tennis players don't hit each other in the head. I'm not sure. <laughs> if they were allowed to hit each other in the head with the rackets, it would probably do well. <laughs> Good films, right? I have one last question for you, Charles. Sure. You're telling all these stories about your, say, the fixing and your life in boxing, of, you know, and, and not holding back on what you say. Now the statutes of limitations are passed. Are you ever kind of slightly worried that you look over your shoulder that somebody's going to seek revenge for something you said? Well, I don't know. I'm not. I'll tell you why I'm not. I was a gangster for a long time. And one of the things I do is if I name names, I name names of people who aren't around anymore. 
and who don't run the risk of being penalized, injured, hurt, uh, arrested for anything I might say. So I'm cautious about it. There are names I don't ever mention. There are things that took place that I don't ever mention. In terms of, you know, I understand that there may be people in the boxing business who are annoyed about the fact that I talk about fight fixing so openly and talk about it's being rampant, you know, in such an unguarded way. But I, I want to say something about people knowing, people who are fans knowing this information. And this is what people in boxing sometimes don't get. My talking about this will not lose boxing one viewer. If anything, the more you know about boxing, including its culture and, and, and including whatever malfeasance is attached to it, only makes boxing more compelling. It will bring people into the sport rather than taking people out of it. And to me, that's a very significant thing. And it's, it's the one element of what I talk about and write about that I'm not sure everyone quite gets. But nobody is going to say, oh, well, I've been watching this all these years and I had no idea that this stuff goes on. I'm gonna stop watching it, fuck these guys. They're gonna say, well, oh, this is, this is fascinating. I want to see how it happens. And um, I, I don't want to sound self-serving here, but in a way I'm doing more harm than good. I, I just, I just there, was a, there was a Freudian slip. <laughs> what I meant is I'm doing more good. Okay, well, I'm, I shouldn't say anything else. I'm doing more good than harm is what I, what I meant to say. You could edit I that suppose as, as, as well, there are certain sports where people really don't believe there's anything crooked going on in it. But boxing has always had that image of the fix, you know, so it's nothing new. It's nothing new. But understand that when money is floating around, big money is floating around, if you think that there aren't fixes, I, I don't follow sports. I, I don't know anything about sports, but I can guarantee you that boxing is not the only fixed sport. Well, well, thanks, Charles, very much for coming on the show today. Oh, Tom, thank you for inviting me. It was really a great, great pleasure. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and you are now listening to Charles himself play a couple of show-offs. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.